This is the Data Privacy Detective. And today we're going to talk about post-quantum data privacy. And we're going to get uh, a view from a, a great pioneer. My guest today is J.B. Benjamin. And J.B., thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you're the founder of Cryotech. That starts with a K where you work on uh, really groundbreaking applications and platforms for the digital world. And Cryotech itself is recognized as a, an industry leader in encrypted application development. After you uh, launched the world's first post-quantum encrypted messenger, we're going to talk about that, Vox Messenger. And you're also venturing now into the cryptocurrency space, uh, with a wallet, Vox Crypto, and we'll talk about that next. But let, let's, before we talk about the messenger and the wallet, tell us a little bit as, as you've experienced this over the years. You know, we share information digitally with all kinds of people and through all kinds of devices. And how does our personal information get stripped out of what we're communicating and used by companies to make a profit, many without our knowledge? It happens, unfortunately every day because we lead such uh, digitally connected lives. From the very minute you pick up your phone, your phone is registering information with Google Maps or Apple Maps about your physical location, where you are at that exact time and space. That information then can be used to find out were you close to another person who's using a similar social media platform. For example, everybody I'm sure is aware of the Facebook friends near me or people you may know mechanic that appears at the bottom of your Facebook profile. And you think to yourself, how does this happen? Oh my God, I saw that person just walking past me earlier today. Yeah, the reason it happens is because they are using your geolocation data that is available from your phone all the time. And it's being harvested to find out when you were near somebody else's IP address, which is also harvested geolocation data. And that so somebody may else may be very privacy-centric and never on Facebook, but somehow Facebook's getting their information. Yeah, because by virtue of the fact that most of our phones are governed by two big corporations, either Apple, which has its own login system, therefore it tracks everything you do with the handset, or Google on the Android system. Now, the reason I prefer Android over Google is because you can actually get versions of Android that do not have the Google vampirific tracking inside of it. But for most of us who just buy our handsets off the shelf or buy a contract with a provider with a mobile provider, it comes in one of those flavors, which basically means everything is being tracked. When you wear a, it gets even worse actually when you have a wearable like a digital watch. Oh my God! Then you're starting to, you are then literally leaking biometric information into the into the digital universe, which they're making money off of with you know with medical and health tracking apps and fitness apps, etc., and advertising directing you to those even more. Now, I think the big question is: is what is the purpose of all of this monster harvesting? And the purpose of this monster harvesting is. Nothing esoteric, and it's nothing glorious except uh, the chasing of the big mamu, big dollars. That's it. Advertising revenue, money. I mean, this is what I find most of the uh, exchanges that we have in the social media and communications platforms to be very negantropic, actually, because the tacit understanding is we give you access to our personal data, which is more valuable than gold at the moment. And in exchange, we get access to your platform, apparently for free, but what does that actually give us in terms of a life experience? What does using Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter, sorry, X, and all of these other platforms give us other than mental health issues and making and making us question our own selves, identity, and where, where we are in the universe. Not really much, actually. But these people, these big companies like Facebook, like Twitter, like Google, they all make tens of millions, billions of dollars just from you using their platforms. And there is no, they don't even ask your permission most of the time, actually. If you read the terms and conditions, the terms and conditions that you sign up to without even reading on all of these platforms are so vast, so multitudinous, and so full of semantic gymnastics and legalese that for most people, the average Joe Bloggs normal, they're never in a million years going to be able to fully understand what it is they're entering into contractually when using these applications. Right. And we have become the product and, uh, you know, we are being given away. Yeah. Basically, yeah. is what's happening, as, as you've described. Well, with that background, then what does cryotech do? Uh, let's focus on Vox Messenger first to enhance personal uh, data privacy. Well, first of all, we do not have a business model that is reliant on ads revenue generation in any shape or form. Why? Because I personally despise ads. Uh, ads. I just hate ads. I hate being marketed to. It's just one of my bugbears. And it really spoils the app experience for me or even the experience of using anything if there is ads all over the place. If a product is really good, I'll always pay for it or I'll pay for something inside of the product. So the way we make our money actually is through, well, we, have, we don't make any money off of it at the moment actually, but we do have new features coming in which users will be able to subscribe to which will enhance their experience. The core, the, the core thing to remember about Vox Messenger, though, is that our strongest capability, our encryption, our privacy, all of those privacy features will always be for free. We, we do not monetize privacy. We do not monetize protection because just like our, our slogan states, privacy is a human right. It's not a privilege just for a select few that can afford it. So well, that's Let me ask you this, JB. What is post-quantum encryption? Post-quantum encryption, if I'm really honest, is a buzzword. It's a buzzword that means that the encryption is so strong that no quantum supercomputer for the next couple of generations can break it. But what it doesn't actually tell you is the fundamental difference between that form of encryption and the, cor the current mainstay standard. What post-quantum encryption actually is, is lattice-based cryptography, whereas the current standard is something called elliptic curve cryptography. And to put it very simply, it is a these are massive mathematical things. But to put it really simply, elliptic curve, the concept of finding a two point, uh, finding points on a line between a parametric curve versus lattice space, finding those points, multiple points across the line inside of a actual lattice based grid, in orders of magnitude two to four hundred times stronger than elliptic curve. I mean, it is the level of complexity is insane on these algorithms. Additionally. We avoid, the algorithms, algorithms we are using are called Round 5 and Falcon, both of which are NIST finalists. NIST being the National Institute for uh, Standards of Technology, which speci uh, specializes in standardizing encryption algorithms. Now, the right. reason we actually pick the winners, which are, uh, which are Kyber and another one, is because the algorithms which won the NIST challenge were actually all produced and all fronted by a company called PQ Data. And PQ Data are directly funded uh, their investors include the NSA and every single bank banking cr in creation. So we knew for a we knew that we could not trust those algorithms. So we actually went with the ones that didn't have that big backing, were fully open sourced, and can be independently reviewed and audited. Talk a little bit about keys. Uh, it's a little like you want to go to somebody else's house and it's locked. Uh, you need a key to their house. You need a key to your house. Two keys. And in a way, data is like that. But then there are public and private keys. And so what does that all have to do with 
post-quantum data privacy. Okay, so we've you have public and private keys, which is a concept which has been used in for decades in cryptography, basically. Your public key being the the shard of the key which is accessible and shared with the with say Bob or Alice in the classic Bob and Alice paradigm. And then the private one containing a fragment of the public, which is the one which is then used to match up and indicate that this person is actually the person is actually the item for which it's meant to be decrypted. Post-quantum does pretty much the same thing. The difference being is that the number calculations and the uh, random number generator or RNG, uh, which is being used to generate the seed numbers, which are used to start the process, are orders of magnitude larger than the actual ones used in these in similar encryption algorithms. It's kind of like the comparison between 64-bit versus 128, or RSA 256 versus RSA 4096. One, like for RSA 256, is actually a very small computational string, whereas the other, RSA 4096, is a insanely huge computational task. You see what I mean? Yeah, so with and then the data, really, uh, whatever the data is, let's say it's personal information, it remains encrypted everywhere it's sent and stored until the re authorized recipient, not the hacker, but the authorized right. recipient opens the message and then decrypts it on, on the, the receiver's device. And what that means, what that really means, basically, is that when you when you send a message on Vox Messenger, the message is encrypted on your phone before it ever leaves your phone. If the encrypted version of that message is then sent to our Firebase server. By the way, we are using Firebase for our databasing at the moment. However, that will be changing in the future when we go completely decentralized, when we move to completely decentralized model, which is what's happening in the first quarter of 2024. Blockchain thinking. Yeah, it goes uh, at the moment, it goes to Firebase and it's completely encrypted. And when it sits in Firebase and is received by the receiver handset, it is still encrypted. It never is. It's not encrypted. It's not decrypted until the key the key passes occur. Uh, sorry, the key check and key passes occurred after the message is actually being checked and received by the receiver handset. I mean, we can actually demonstrate live actually at some point if we, if people would like. We can actually demonstrate that one of our core features is something called incinerate. Because as everybody knows, on every platform, yeah, they talk about that. That's uh, sometimes called what message burning, uh, immolation. Yeah. Is that, yeah. What is that? Well, everybody else calls it delete for everyone. So when you look on Facebook and WhatsApp, you have to delete for everyone. But what it should actually say is delete for everybody except for the platform owner, because that's all it does on on WhatsApp and Facebook. It just deletes the message from the receiver handset and the sender handset, but then keeps a copy of it on their servers for later metrics and analysis. Also, given that WhatsApp. And it looks very likely Signal and other companies are also doing lots of cybersecurity oversight for various governments. It becomes clear why delete for everyone is something that a lot of these companies will not actually fully support. Now, we our feature incinerate, it will delete in it instantly deletes the message from your handset, the receiver handset, as well as the Firebase server and any storage and transit server, the message even went through in, in its fully encrypted format. It also deletes the private and public key for that message, because it could, should be remembered that every message that is sent in Vox Messenger has its own key, not just the session, which is what everybody else does. And then you're working, as I understand it, on, you may have upcoming features where you might have variable destruction times, the way we see um, Actually, we already have variable times. We have it on already. But yeah. what the new feature that is coming out is something we have called the Mikoshi Protocol, because we're acutely aware that journalists and activists and people in countries with um, non-democratic governments are yeah. prone to have their technology taken from them and cloned by government or security forces or the police. 
Yeah. So with the Makoshi protocol, we've created a system whereby if somebody is to take your phone, you can actually give them a, a special PIN code when they unlock the phone. Synthetic data re then replaces all of your actual original data. So they do not gain access to your, your contacts or any of your messages or your content. I mean, by the way, we've also demonstrated in tests that if you try to clone a phone running Vox Messenger, when you try to run Vox Messenger on the cloned handset, it doesn't work. In fact, it breaks all of the keys irrevocably for everybody. It's beautiful. <laughs> so to sum up a little bit on Vox Messenger, it, it, it's a combination of, uh, I, I'll call it multi-layered uh, encryption, user-controlled data, and, and then additional privacy features that a business or an individual may want to have over uh, over and above what's what's on Vox Messenger. Mm-hmm. We also well, have let's a turn a, a bit to Vox Crypto. What, what is it and how does it help enhance privacy among those who are turning to cryptocurrency? Again, we looked at the industry. I've been in the crypto space myself for quite a while. And the one thing is that became abundantly clear is that everybody is getting scammed, everybody's getting robbed, and no companies or individuals in the space appear to have any interest in doing anything other than pumping and dumping their own bloody shit coins. Now, let me interrupt, and I think you're exploding the myth that blockchain is uh, can't be hacked, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, because blockchain at its very at its very core has nothing to do with money whatsoever, and that's where the that's where the problem is actually arising. Blockchain is a serious technology that allows you to have a non-repudiable record-keeping system. It is a freaking ledger. Decentralized. Yeah. Decentralized. And it's everywhere, and it's everything at once. But the problem is, is that you've got lots of groups of people realizing they can make money off of it in all kinds of various Ponzi-like schemes, sorry, NFT projects. So what we did with Vox Crypto is we built a we decided to build a wallet that wouldn't that would not only be secure and private and involve no tracking of your personal data or your phone or your phone metadata of any kind, but also solves a problem, which is that how do you send quantities of crypto to large groups of people at the same yeah. time? So as you know, anybody who uses the Ethereum network, if you send to more than one or two people, you can watch that gas fee going up incrementally. So you kind of get to the point if you send say $50 to 10 to 10 people, you've spent more than the total cost just on the transfer fees or the gas fees. Yeah. So we've created a smart contract that actually allows you to say to send a, a single amount or variable amounts to 500 or more people in a single group transaction for a single gas, gas optimized gas fee. It's so clever, in fact, that it even generates individual transaction IDs for each transaction, so you still are able to track every individual transaction. And I think you have a partnership with WalletGuard, and, and why is that? What, what does that do? Uh, so WalletGuard is, they're like the kings of, of wallet protection and phishing checking in the crypto space. I mean, their browser extension is freaking amazing. And if anybody is listening to this who's into crypto, I definitely recommend them getting it because the way they, what they do is they have the largest database of phishing and drainer wallets and scam projects. And not only that, the tech that's being implemented in Vox Crypto means that every single transaction, every single contract signing attempt even, is pre-simulated before you go ahead with it, which basically means you get to simulate if connecting to a wallet is going to drain your assets before you actually connect to the wallet. This is huge. This basically is a huge pre preventative step, I feel, basically. We also have a partnership with Transact. And the reason we have the partnership with Transact is because 
We are using Transact for credit card, debit card, and banking, off-ramping and on-ramping natively in-app. I mean, I know many of us have used MetaMask browser and found how quickly money has been purchased, how, how quickly we've used it to purchase cryptocurrency and then seen that cryptocurrency go to our wallet and then straight drain somewhere else. And that's because it's using a browser which can be easily hijacked. What we're doing is we're putting the actual ability to purchase crypto and sell crypto natively into your crypto wallet, thereby reducing the ability to play man in the middle attacks or hijack. Right. And then let's just talk briefly about regulation. You're in the process, as I understand it, of, of formal registration with the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. Now, what's what's the point of that? That's correct. Basically, the point of, of registering and jumping through the hoops of the FCA is kind of like jumping through the hoops of SEC or FCC registration. It basically is saying to the world that we have we are committing to a code of conduct a level of privacy, security, and auditing. And we're ensuring that all of our systems are not just mitigated, not all of our systems are not just reliable and protected, but also contain mitigations in the event of theft or hijacking or future hacking or something like that. So having an FCA registration basically gives people, tells people that we are accountable and we can be held accountable. If we violate any of the FCA regulations or are found to have committed money laundering, fraud, or anything like that, I, the individual, can go to jail. That's why we are we are making sure that we get FCA registered. We want people to be able to see that for once, a company and a group of people are willing to actually stand by their product and what they believe in, which is transparency awesome. and uh, yeah. mirroring trust. Yeah. Well, let me, Bowie. Well, we could talk much longer, but uh, I try to keep this to manageable segments. So let me uh, ask you about two final things. Of course, regulation and industry uh, standard setting are evolving, and there are a lot of differences globally by countries. And of course, governments vary greatly in terms of their authoritarian or democratic aspect. But for businesses that want to be more privacy-centric and avoid, avoid the risk of uh, not just reputational damage, but GDPR fines and penalties and UK fines and so on, what are your top tips? What's your real advice? Okay, so I, my top advice for maintaining compliance is do a ton of re, do lots of research, research the regulatory and financial financial landscape of wherever you plan to be. I would also say do a lot of research into the behavioral dynamics and the societal psychology of the environment you plan to go into. For example, if you look at say a market like India, India has practically no privacy laws. That's because as a country, they actually don't seem to really put much that store or uh, protections in place. Well, they've adopted a new code, but uh, one of my good uh, friends, uh, one of the top privacy lawyers in India calls it privacy light. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a it's, it's service purposes. And, you know, at the end of the day, there could, there's lots of cultural differences for how yes. privacy and security is actually viewed. It's not actually always a bad thing either, having these differences. Mm -hmm. You know, it just becomes a bit of a pain in the butt if you're an international organization doing business there and you find that certain things you can, you get used to there are not permissible in other parts of the world, then you need to realize that you need to be studying and getting in deep with the financial and regulatory landscape of the place you plan to be in, wherever right. it is. And um, beyond the regulatory aspect, uh, what about ISO or SOC? And so um, Good idea, bad idea for businesses? Um, if you're a startup, trying to aim at things like ISO 2701 or SOC 2 compliance is an expensive and onerous compliance It's task. not affordable. Yeah, it's not affordable. Started. It really is. And, and given the size of a lot of little startups, 
it is really pointless, to be honest. What you're better off doing if you're somebody like that, if you're a small to mid-range startup, is to focus on things like COPA, focus on GDPR. These are low-hanging fruit, which are really easy to implement mechanistically, and it's actually stuff that's well-established as well. Well, let's turn to individuals as our last topic. All of us as individuals, what steps are your uh, top of your list for safeguarding our own privacy and identity? Okay, so before the first thing I would say before we get to that is we have to remember that we are in the 21st century and we're moving from a what we would call a Web 2 world to Web 3 world. What is Web 2? Web 2 is the world where platforms provide for you and they are in charge and accountable for your personal security and security of your data and your privacy. In the Web3 world, everything is decentralized. You are king, and you, therefore, are responsible and accountable for your own privacy and security. So I would say to every individual is, do your own research. You need to start upgrading your learning on everything around you because you are now responsible for your personal data provenance. That basically means you're responsible for knowing how to protect passwords, whether or not you should be using your pet's names, your lover's names, or your your children's names and birthdays passwords. Or the password question, one, two, three. Not a good yeah. idea. No, no. The answer is no to all of those, by the way. But <laughs> search this. Learn. By the way, don't just take from random people like me this advice. Learn the reasons why. Because there is no better defense than actually doing a bit of reading, doing some research into these subjects. I'll give you an example. The most common form of hack, believe it or not, does not involve any Mr. Robot or hackers style technology, the most common form of hack is something called social engineering. And social engineering is where a a bad actor will use knowledge gained from you, about you, from your social media to insert themselves in your life into a way that allows them to gain access to your technology and your privacy. And how does that happen? It happens very simply because you decided not to set your Facebook profile to private. Just simple things like that can have yeah. Huge attention effect. to your settings on the big ones. Absolutely. Yes. Set How about MFA? Multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication, the absolute pain in the ass that we all need. And yes, it does make your, I mean, we all know how it feels, especially if you're somebody like me, when you've got multiple websites opening or you're trying to open multiple things and then you have to go into your Google Authenticator, get the code. Yes, it's not easy and it's not comfortable. But ladies and gentlemen, it is about the only thing that will stop you from having your money, digital assets, and information stolen at the moment. That's right. That's right. And we care of our, our physical wallets. We need to do the same on the web. Exactly. You know, protect your neck. You, you don't let people run up to you and just stick their hands in your pocket and pull your wallet out, do you? Well, I hope not. Why do it on the web? Any last advice or thoughts for our listeners? Advice would be research and really look at the world around you. We are living in a Star Trek universe. The Star Trek future is right here. We just need the rest of you. We need humanity to evolve and recognize that. And that starts with us, you, me, everybody. We just have to accept we're in the 21st century and it's time to be getting, you know, given to the techno lust. It's here. We've got to just get on with it now, you know. Be serious about it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on this really interesting excursion. It's really not the future. It, It is simply the... Web 3.0, post-quantum age that we live in and get used to it. As always, dear listeners, I will close by reminding us all, protecting your personal privacy begins with you. 